So that was actually a really cool episode. Um, we've got Jessica Schreiber on from Fab Scrap, the founder, one of the, the two founders from Fab Scrap, fabscrap.org. Pretty really cool organization, actually. They basically take used fabric from a lot of these brands in New York and on the East Coast and be able to recycle or upcycle them into other things. So they sell stuff, but they also sell a lot of the fabric back again. So it helps reduce a ton of waste. They're taking in about 7,000 pounds per week of fabric right now. That's two truckloads five days a week. Yes, yes. Yes. (laughs) That's a lot, Um, right? And then some of it has to get sorted. Um, Some is proprietary coming from brands and fashion brands and... uh, all of the scrap and waste aren't even from like high volume manufacturers. This is just um, like the prototyping and design studios in New York, which is insane. Super yeah. cool episode. Very cool. All right. Um, excited to be able to dive in. Jessica, appreciate joining us. Um, I did a lot of research on Fab Scrap. I, I didn't debrief Steven yet, though, on all this stuff, but I've got all the notes on my end. So I, I've been I've been Insta stalking. Okay, our Insta is <laughs> a good place to start. You're you're verified on Instagram, so we know it's legit. Um, <laughs> I have to buy my verification on Twitter now, I guess. But uh, so Jess, you, you go by Jess or Jessica? Jess is good. Yeah. Jess, cool. Uh, we have two Jesses that work at Campus Inc. So that yeah, that's well. that's great. Um, Okay, your Instagram's very legit. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, um, did that happen organically, or did did that happen organically, or did did it take a lot of time to get there? Like, did something go? Um, did you go viral? No, we haven't gone viral. That's just like organic growth over the last six or seven years. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been an evolving process. It looks a lot more professional now than it did in early days when I was running it myself. Um, but yeah, now we have some, some real graphics up and using it more legitimately as like a, a marketing tool. Um, it's super legit. Go ahead, Bruce. So fab scraps like a, it's a not for profit or non nonprofit. We're a nonprofit. Yeah. We're a 501 C three. Okay. But you guys do, have a strong business model. Uh, so, so based off my research, um, you know, you're growing, your facility's growing, you're hiring people. It's like profitable. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know the details of like the, the not-for-profit, non-profit, like for-profit, but anyway, like it's sustainable. The business is sustainable yeah. off of this yeah. model that, uh, companies, um, that have to deal with fabric, whether wholesalers or a lot of brands, it seems like pay you to take a lot of their excess scraps out. Um, and then you sort it out and then be able to use it to resale of which you've also, it seems to have a pretty cool, like a retail component. What's I've learned this word upcycle now, um, being in Los Angeles more that, uh, it's <laughs> exactly. like a trendy word here, but like, I mean, you guys take that and you're, you're able to make some really cool things that you sell too. Is that like the gist of a uh, high level of, of scrap, fab scrap? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really, um, in a nutshell, it's like businesses have a ton of waste and usually it's not like 
measured or recorded. Like we don't really think about what businesses throw away because there's so much attention on what we throw away as consumers, but businesses have a ton of waste, a lot of it usable. And so by connecting like business waste with individual consumers, that's kind of where our thrift model comes in. And so we have a B2B side where we're working with like 750 fashion companies and then B2C where we're taking the usable fabric and we have a fabric thrift store, um, two in person and one online. What What is a sense of size here? Just, just to understand, because this, this also isn't for folks listening is not like in your, you know, garage, uh, no, videos, no. like the, a lot is going on. So, you know, where are you guys at size wise? Yeah. Um, so like I said, we're providing textile recycling service now to 750, um, fashion companies and we're picking up about six to 7,000 pounds of fabric a week. Um, wow. How do I, how do I visualize six to seven rolls? How many, like we know rolls of fabric. We've seen rolls of fabric. Yeah. So think it's, they either come in on rolls or we have, um, fab scrap bags that look like giant laundry bags, like the biggest laundry bag that you could like purchase at a laundromat and brands will fill that with scraps or they'll send us rolls. So six to 7,000 pounds. I mean, we're running two trucks a day, five days a week and we're filling those trucks. Um, so if that helps, wow. filling like a, like two, a van or a box tr- truck, two trucks a week and then two five days, a day. of, two trucks a day. So a two day, truckloads yeah. of fabric a day. And is this all in New York mostly? Yeah. Or all- um, we just expanded to Philadelphia at the end of 2021 and that kind of opened up more of the mid Atlantic, like DC, Baltimore, New Jersey. Um, and so we've started to sign up more more companies along the East coast and mid Atlantic, but the bulk is, is New York. I mean, it's, it's the fashion capital. That's where all the brands have their offices. So, and, and production facilities, right. Or like, how large is that? That has to be a lot of space. That's what's crazy is what we're picking up is only design waste. So this is just the waste from people like doing the very initial mock-ups of a garment. We're not even touching yet when they say like, okay, go ahead and make a hundred thousand t-shirts or a hundred thousand jackets. We're not even touching that waste yet. Most of that happens internationally at this point anyway, but what we're working with is really just design office. And that's what's so incredible. So we've picked up over a million pounds and that's just design waste. Okay. So if you have that many truckloads, how much space do you have? Because like yeah, we can barely hold. Yeah, we can barely like at Campus Inc. We get you know forty, fifty boxes from UPS a day, and I feel like we're busting at the seams. How much space do you do you all have? Yeah, I mean we're we're creative with space. Um, we have about twelve thousand square feet um, in Brooklyn, and then about six thousand in Philly. Um, but in Brooklyn, a good portion of that, I would say like 3,000 of that is office space. Like that's also where just like our office and headquarters are. And so we're really trying to like get through material as fast as possible. It comes in, we sort it either internally or with volunteer help, and then we want it to, we want it to go out either by cell or for recycling. Okay. I was going to say, okay, so if you're bringing that much in, and you're kind of getting whatever comes your way, right? Like, like it's not like it's just ready to re like upcycle. You still have to process it. Um, like do the, do the companies then pay you all to come pick that up like a recycling service? Yeah. So that was like, 
I think the big transition that Fab Scrap was for when I was even pitching it as a business idea is most people think like it's fabric. So it's a donation. And we think that way, even as consumers, like, oh, if I'm not going to wear this sweatshirt anymore, I should donate it. Um, the problem is so much, there's so much volume and there's only like so much that fashion schools can take so much that arts organizations can take. Like neither of those could take 6,000 pounds a week and like, and process that properly. So a lot of designers were just throwing it away. Um, and the same way that these companies pay for trash pickup or they pay for paper recycling, we're now just the textile version of that. So we really had to kind of change the verb from you're donating to FabScrap to you're recycling with FabScrap. And the only thing that we do take as donation, like we'll pick up for free, are usable rolls of fabric because we know we'll be able to resell them. And that's that's what donations should be. They should be things that can be resold so that the org can use that money for their charitable purposes. So this couldn't work with, I'm just thinking, right, so our industry is a lot of screen printers, embroiderers, uh, you know, it's probably more scrap, but they're all also is just extras that, that may be ordered and, and sitting around. Um, but to donate, it would need to be more like organized on a roll or unused like that you're saying. I mean, we do work with a few, um, artists and screen printers for that reason. Like there's misprints, there's extras, things like that. And so instead of throwing those away, or sometimes if they're somewhat proprietary, depending on what you're screen printing, you can't donate them. Um, mm. and so in that way, like we do work with some of those companies as like a recycling resource instead of throwing it away. Okay. We're going to get back to the episode, but real quick, got a couple of awesome sponsors I want to talk to you about. First off, GraphX Source. If you need a solution to help improve efficiency and reduce costs in your art department, GraphX Source offers industry leading outsourcing options for your shop to be able to handle this. They're plug and play with Printavo or any other shop management software, but the big thing is, is production art, right? So SEPs, mock-ups, creative art, order management, digitizing, all that good stuff. They're there to help. You know, Campus Inc. is a big graphics uh, user. You guys have, you said two artists now? Mm-hmm. Jeannie and Nancy. Jeannie and Nancy, shouts out. And make sure to use Printavo Pod for 50% off your first vector, SEP, or embroidery order. Thanks, graphics. Bruce, I don't know about you, but when I'm reclaiming screens these days, I only use EasyWay. Um, just kidding. It would be pretty funny to see Bruce and I try to reclaim a screen. It'd be pretty funny to see Bruce reclaim a screen. But if he did, <laughs> he wouldn't spend all day cleaning dirty screens. He'd use EasyWay's line of environmentally conscious chemicals to get the job done faster, more efficiently, and cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. Uh, our favorites at Campus Inc. are 701-842. Uh, Bruce's favorite is Easy Glide. Um, Easy Way has environmentally friendly chemicals to help reclaim run efficiency. If you value a company to help you with how-tos, best practices, and questions, Easy Way is there. Give it a go. Thanks so much to the team at Easy Way. We appreciate you. Fair. Do you need... <sighs> no, I didn't like that one. <laughs> I, I was going to say... Who is your daddy? <laughs> uh, well, I have a couple, but one of them is Dave Eggers for Ink and Supplies. Actually, Dave Eggers crossed 500 followers on Instagram 
Major shout out, Dave. And to his 500th follower, he sent them a handwritten card and a gallon of ink. And he texts me, he goes, what do you think of this? And I said, heck yeah. Um, So if you need ink supplies or a daddy, hit up Multicraft Screen Printing and Digital Supplies for over 50 years. They've been providing you with top brands at competitive prices. Mention the Printavo pod and receive an extra 10% off your first order. Um, Dave's actually working on a new logo. He sent me a couple of different options. They were pretty cool. Ooh, um, I had to I had to turn one down because the New Balances and the socks weren't in there. So I was like, not gonna work. But uh, <laughs> thanks, Multicraft. All right. Last but not least, Supercolor. Bruce, you've been heat pressing. Don't don't be shy. You've been heat right. pressing in your house. Um, we have heat. Uh, I don't have uh, I don't have a transfer right here, but. All right. So this is actually really cool and this helped us a lot. Um, but if you go to supercolor.com slash print hustlers, supercolors put together this really cool guide that has a ton of information of getting started and just best practices. So if you've already been heat pressing, that's cool too. But more importantly, it's got a lot of really good tips because they do transfers at scale. And I've seen the facility a couple of times. It's unbelievable. So if you're thinking about, for example, high color designs, um, weird stuff on, on hard to print locations, shoulder prints, uh, um, uh, inside labels, um, different gradients, a bunch more, this guide can help with all this with, uh, around best practices of using heat transfers for that. But also they've got some things like how to price, right? How do you price this kind of work. That's a a big question that comes up different types of heat transfers that they make. And then also what is a quality heat press? (laughs) Don't get stuck buying crap. Uh, but check it out. Super color. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't want to, I'm not going to call them out like the, uh, the DTF one. I, um, Farrakh told me that this is just a hobby press. It's okay. Uh, that's not a legit one. But check it out, supercolor.com slash print hustlers to download the guide. All right, back to the show. We just interviewed Dom from Superior Inc. in Denver, Colorado, um, who has, is, is very forward thinking. And he was even saying that there's companies that they will give their blank shirts that have test prints on and they'll cut out the plastisol and just use the fabric. Oh, wow. um, is that something? So when you guys get, when y'all, when you all get scraps in, what does that intake look like? Like I'd love to be a fly on the wall and see how that, and I'm just looking at the Instagram right now, but what, what, what is that intake look like? Yeah. So, um, when it comes into the warehouse, the first thing that we do is weigh it. Um, so every brand gets their diversion metrics, which is also where we would differ from trash. Like you're not weighing the trash and getting a report on your like environmental impact when you throw things away. So we weigh everything as soon as it comes in and then it's either proprietary or not. And that's a brand decision. And if it's not proprietary, um, it's sorted by our volunteer team. And really what they're looking for is, um, if it's big enough to reuse, which for us is more than a yard, and if it's too small, removing paper, staples, stickers, et cetera, um, so that it can be recycled and it becomes insulation, carpet padding, mattress stuffing. Um, and if it's proprietary, we do that same process. We just do it with Fab Scrap hired um, hired members of the team. So when you say proprietary, like, I don't know. I see like Steve Madden on there. Don't, like they send you scraps. They're like, you cannot use this. This cannot go to the thrift stores to be resold. What do you have to do with the proprietary stuff? Like what, how do you have to handle that differently? 
proprietary will only get shredded and recycled. So it will never be resold. And yeah, it's some, like we let brands decide what's proprietary or not. Some are way more litigious than others and say like, everything's proprietary. Don't resell anything. Um, some let us resell everything. Um, so it's really like a brand decision. We do get some interesting stuff in the proprietary stream though. Like, um, some celebrity collabs that have fallen through, but the merch is all made. Um, so obviously they don't want to donate it. They don't want to just like have the, it could be potentially bad press to throw it away or incinerate it. Um, same thing with like a political um, candidate didn't get his party's nomination, but he had all of his t-shirts, like all of his campaign t-shirts <laughs> made. Um, so we recycled those. So, yeah, we see some interesting stuff come in that proprietary stream. Will you actually do – so I see in there like there's a shredder. Is that your shredder then? We work with a third party right now, but we're fundraising to own a shredder because that process, just like historically, there's only like three or four in the whole U.S. Huh. They're very secretive. Like it's very much a black box, and it's sort of like you have to know people who know people to even like find one to use. So we're trying to own our own shredders so we can be a little bit more transparent about that process and and um, share more about how that works. If anyone wants to get into the apparel shredding business or fabric shredding business, there's an opportunity there. There's a demand. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. And so once it's shredded, so you send it to the third party, they shred it, and then how, how do you see that it goes to the right? Like, do you then see it see it to like getting recycled, or how does that work? One thing that's like important to clarify, I guess, is that there's no real recycling in textiles right now. Like true recycling would be fabric back into fabric. And there's mm. tech that's in development for that, but it's it's not taking volume right now. It's, they're not ready to like go to market with it. And they're very particular. It needs to be like 100% cotton feedstock to create a cellulose fabric at the end. And most fabrics are blends these days. So really the shredding is more downcycling. It becomes like, it almost looks like polyfill, but like multicolored polyfill. <laughs> um, and it's just a mix of fabric. It's more downcycling and it gets used in insulation, soundproofing, carpet padding, mattress stuffing, moving blankets. It's used quite a bit in the automotive industry to like line car doors, line the trunks of cars, things like that. So it's more industrial use and it's shredded down to the level where like nothing's identifiable about it. Um, so yeah, basically right now the third party is like working those markets, but that's something that we're learning more about. That's so I, I spent um, a week in Honduras uh, with Gildan to see their whole supply chain and the amount of they, they like technically carbon neutral and all of their scraps, they have like this whole team and that actually goes back into their biomass and they have a biotop for all their water dying in circulation. And they're like, if we're not careful about this, the amount of waste we produce is disgusting um, with just the scale that they have. But what they yeah. did talk about is cotton and like yarn and how that's such a particular process um, that can't just, cause that, that was brought up too. So that's, that's super, super, super interesting. Wait, so we learned downcycling, Bruce. Now down you got to bring that to the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, and upcycle. <laughs> now, doesn't aren't there some fabrics though that can be like broken down? Isn't there like chemical process that breaks the fat, the fibers down, and that's how you get recycled polyester? Or or is that not really the case? 
Most recycled polyester, I would say like the, the secret behind that is that that's actually plastic bottles. It's not. Okay. So like a, there's a company called All Made that, that uses, uh, and I think it's called uh, Reprieve. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the big, you know, brand name that makes it. But yeah. so, so basically those are melted down that turns into the fibers and then they weave those. Right. So, um, there's, there's some fiber to fiber technology, but it's, it's not really like usable mass market yet. So to find it, I think like in something you would buy at a retail store would be kind of rare when you see things that are marketed as like, this is made from recycled content. It's probably polyester, which means it's plastic, which means it's probably coming from some other like third source of plastic. Usually it's like plastic bottles or something like that. But there's no way to use really no way at scale. It sounds like, cause, cause that was the other thing that was interesting looking into this is just that it's too expensive as well. Like it, it discourages really research in the form of, of looking at true thread refiber or, or I'm sorry, recycling to new fabric because it's so expensive. It's so much cheaper to get new fabric. Um, and so it discourages the whole process. Yeah. I mean, cheaper only in like purely economic terms, but not environmentally, because if we're thinking about the virgin materials used to create new fabric, like polyester is technically crude oil. So there's a multitude of climate change (laughs) impacts there. And then even with the more natural fibers like um, cotton, silk, linen, et cetera, there's quite a bit of like water use and land use to create those fibers too. And so it's, yeah, virgin fibers are like new fabrics are technically cheaper than recycled, but that's if you're only looking like in, in a really short term of time, not including environmental costs and impacts. Yeah. So just like you're, you have this massive amount of intake and then you have to create demand quickly <laughs> to then sell it. So like, that's the other side of it is like, Oh my God, we, ha- we have all this, like right. all this fabric. How do you handle the demand like creation of, of the usable uh, fabric. Yeah. So we're, what's funny is when we started, I thought we were going to shred like 80%. Like I just didn't really think we were going to get that much usable fabric. Um, we're only shredding 40%. So the vast majority of what we're bringing in is usable material, which is great. Um, and I, my background being like climate science and waste management didn't know how much demand there would be for fabric. Um, my co-founder, her background is fashion design. And so she came on particularly because we had so much fabric to sell. And I was like, I don't know the blue, but I couldn't tell you that it was like a denim of this weight with this weave for these uses the way that she could. Um, and so she's really been able to market the fabric, particularly where we've like seen a lot of growth is with fashion schools, because we're definitely cheaper than retail fabrics. Um, it's still really high quality fabric because it's coming from New York city design offices and it's lower quantities. Like we're probably not going to have 50 yards of something, but most individual like students, home sewers, crafters, like Etsy stores, they don't need a ton of volume anyway. And so it really fits this nice like niche market of like the home sewer, the fashion student, the like Mm. new Etsy store. And all of them are really interested in doing something more sustainable anyway. Um, So yeah, it's, we, our warehouses are basically open to the public. You can come shop from everything that's not proprietary. 
And then our online store is how we've been distributing a lot of material too. Do you ever feel like you're getting too much in and not enough getting sold? And you're like, oh my goodness, where where are we going to put all this? Like, how how does that happen when it's like we need we need people to come in here and buy this? How, how does that? How do you juggle that? Sometimes, I mean, we do we do have a wholesale section, and being a nonprofit, one of our goals is to give away as much fabric as we sell. So we have um, a pay what you wish section where if you wish to pay zero, that's okay. You can just take the roll of fabric home with you. Um, so it's it's funny. It's been kind of some of the magic of Fab Scrap that both things move when we need them to move, and also things come in when we need them to come in, um, and it. It, I think that's part of like, sometimes you have to be a little patient, but it always like, it always moves and wow. works out. So this probably can't work in another city. Uh, right. Like just because you have, it sounds like you have such supply and demand in New York because it's such a big fashion area. But like, if you, you know, you're in Chicago, I, I don't know, maybe there'd be donations, but I don't know how many people would be buying necessarily. Or is that... Is that not the case? I've been really happy with um, how Philly's performing in its first year, which like you don't necessarily think of Philadelphia as like a fashion (laughs) capital. Um, But we have in the first year, 30 brands signed up in Philadelphia um, providing us fabric. And then there's several schools there. And so we have volunteers and customers coming in. Um, The next big city where we're looking and where we had started to work right before COVID is Los Angeles because there are a lot of brands headquartered there. There is more production there too than there is on the East coast. Um, and so we could start to work on production waste. Also the fashion schools there. Um, so yeah, LA probably works. And then, mm-hmm. it, then it's probably more international, um, Paris, London, Milan. There's been a lot of interest in Toronto and Australia. So, um, yeah, wow. but those, I mean, those, Every city, I think, has demand for fabric because there's people who sew everywhere. Um, but it's it's the the density of brands who have fabric waste that helps things work well. Jess, how do you scale something like that when you're like, okay, I am in New York as a small business owner, right? Like I'm in New York and I want to launch this in Philly. Like I can barely run, you know, a print <laughs> shop. <laughs> um, how, how do you like, yeah, tell us about your org and like, and, and how you're able to make that possible. Yeah. I mean, um, Bruce, like you said earlier, it was, even though we're a nonprofit, um, it was really important to me that like the business model makes sense because I'm not a natural fundraiser. <laughs> um, it's like, that's one of the more difficult parts of my job just for me personally. And so I needed the business part to make sense. And so we've been profitable every year except for 2020. And being a nonprofit just means that that profit doesn't go to any owners. It stays in the company so the company can continue to grow and do its environmental and charitable mission. So um, we've grown steadily each year and that's just from the service fees and fabric sales. And then these big expansion projects are usually in conjunction with support from a brand. So Urban Outfitters and their like family of brands, um, Anthropology Free People, Newly, their headquarters are in Philadelphia and they were shipping things to New York. And then they wanted to know, well, 
what would it take for you to open in Philadelphia so that you're right down the street and we could just drop off scraps? And I sent them a proposal. And so they kind of helped us get that off the ground. And I, I foresee that being how LA works too. There's so many brands that we have on a wait list in LA that with some fundraising from the brands, we could bring this like circular infrastructure and service to everyone on the West coast. And those brands get to show some leadership in the process. I guess it reduces a lot of friction when you're bringing on your customers, when you can just tell them like, this isn't for personal gain. Um, (laughs) That probably helps when you say fundraise, will they literally like pay to build the facility and set everything up? Like, is it to that extent? Yeah. So um, urban helped us out with um, finding a warehouse and uh, the first year or two of just some like general operating support because once we're sort of at scale with enough fabric coming in and enough people buying fabric, a location is pretty self-sustaining. It's just the timeline needed to get to that scale. And yeah, I think it, I think it reduces some friction in that like they get a lot of great press and can show a lot of leadership for doing this. Like they are bringing it to the new city, but then 29 other brands also get to use the service. Um, And also that they're getting so much data. Like every brand who signs up gets so much environmental data, which they're now using in CSR metrics. Yeah, that's crazy. And what's CSR? Communications, um, corporate social responsibility. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, you you never know like how, how much goes to waste or what it is or to, to be able to show it off. Yeah. I think that's been, that's been a main selling point that I've seen grow over the years of people really being interested in the data of the diversion, the recycling. I mean, we, we go so far as to give brands their CO2 savings, even from the recycling and reuse that we do for them. So it really helps them when they have questions about like what they're doing around sustainability. And how early on in the process did you start giving them that data? Like coming from your background, was the, was the data important to you from the get go? Was that like a foundation of the business? Yeah. I mean, I think having prior to starting Pastcap, I worked at New York city's department of sanitation. And so coming from like a government background, um, Data was sort of what ruled everything. So I've been tracking it since day one. Um, In the early years, they would get an annual impact report. But in the last couple of years, we've upgraded our systems where they can log on and in real time see from each pickup what their environmental impact is. What do you use for that? Or did you have to build something? That seems like we, such a specific niche of, of oh, a software Bruce, tool. Bruce, there's a software opportunity. Simple uh, like waste management. Simple recycling, waste management. Waste management. It's better than waste I management. Mean, the, the core is Salesforce. But yes, we had to do a lot of customization um, to make it track everything that we needed. Holy cow, that sounds expensive. To integrate Salesforce <laughs> right now. Yeah. We're also doing it's the same not- and it's behind and it's very expensive. Okay. I mean, so- it's powerful, but it is it's a beast. Like <laughs> are using it's a lot sales of work. the part- the partners platform or whatever? Yeah. Like sales Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> my Salesforce Slack channel is like the dark like I just I hate being in it. Anyways. <laughs> Um, I digress. So coming from sanitation, okay, how, like, let's backtrack. How did you just decide to start doing this? What, what moved you to, to tell us about like early, early, early days? Yeah. Um, well, first I think like I was studying climate science, um, at Columbia and that's how I ended up in New York. And one of my professors at Columbia worked at sanitation and they were launching for the very first time clothing recycling, 
um, for the city and she needed some interns and I like very quickly volunteered. Um, and so I was working at the city when they rolled out clothing recycling for the first time. Um, they put donation bins in apartment buildings in basements, laundry rooms, lobbies, so that people could just drop their clothing and home goods and shoes like from their apartment instead of having to take bags in a cab or down the street. And so that was sort of my intro to textile waste. And I learned a lot very quickly because, I mean, we we move a lot of material, but that program, when I left it, was a quarter of a million pounds a month they were collecting. Um, so massive amounts of textile waste in New York City. And then um, because I ended up getting hired there and sort of running that program for the city, anytime there were questions about like, what do we do with textile waste? Those would find their way to my inbox. And there was probably 25, 30 brands that all had the same question, like, what should I be doing with my design waste? And there wasn't a good place to send them. They were getting turned away from like arts programs and fashion schools because it was just too much material. And so I started a working group, like, let's just talk about what this problem is, what roadblocks you guys are hitting. But I was already really familiar with the collection, with the end uses, et cetera, from doing it on the post-consumer side. And so that really became the focus group for Fab Scrap. And I pitched the idea on a TV show to get my initial funding, and here we are. <laughs> what show? Um, Project Runway did a one-season Shark Tank spinoff where they had investors like hearing pitches about fashion companies. Okay. And so I wasn't quite in the fashion space. It was like definitely in that Venn diagram of fashion and waste, but I pitched and that's where I got the funding to get started. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's super cool. <laughs> I knew there was a segment on like CBS, but okay. So like you pitched on project runway. That's like yeah. H, uh, HBO came out with like the, the hype or the max also like recently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How did you get on that? Like, did you, yeah, how did you get on the show? That's awesome. Um, a friend of mine, her, like one of her family members was involved in production. And so she knew that they were like looking for people and she told me to apply. Um, and I, it was really just an idea at the time. Like I didn't have anything set up. I hadn't started. I was still at sanitation. Um, but I applied and, and then they were like, we really want you to come in for a pitch. And so I put everything together. Um, I actually gave my two week notice right before I pitched because I was like, I need to make sure that I'm like fully invested Ooh. in this. Whoa. Yeah. Um, but that that's before you like gotten any investors or any like you're just like, OK, I'm doing this. Yeah, I was at that point. I was sort of like, I think I can do it with or without investment like I, I kind of know what needs to happen next and the investment would be great. It would make it happen faster. Um, but yeah, that was, it was, that's a, I, one of the things I always tell people who have an idea for a business and they're like super secretive about it is like, you should start telling people right away. Because if I hadn't told my friend that I was thinking about this, I never would have been connected to the show and been able to pitch. And no one is going to care about your idea the way you do. No one is going to chase it the way that you will. And so I don't think you have to like hold it so close to your chest. Um, so did you, who invested or how did that, how did that all play out? Um, I mean, filming, filming was really intense. I, like, yeah. Tell us about like, that. I've heard some stories <laughs> from like contract all the way through to like the end of filming. Um, it's just like an intense process, reality TV. Um, and there were four, four investors, um, 
I pitched and three of them made investments. Um, and then they also encouraged me to go nonprofit because they were like, I don't think this is going to like scale immediately and be like a huge return, but it's valuable what you're trying to do. So we'll make the investment, but go nonprofit. And um, one thing that I thought was hilarious is you do the pitch a couple times before they sit down and they have you do it two times happy and two times sad so that they have clean takes of you happy and sad <laughs> either way. And the then you actually of, uh, yeah. business pitching. do that again. Okay. Look sad. Yeah. Uh, we need like, more, tears, Jess. more tears. Yeah. That was it. That was it. And then it, what was crazy was they kept getting upset with me because my happy and sad takes look the same. And I'm just like, it's a business was, thing. Like I'm not going to cry on TV if this, yeah. is, you know what I mean? Like, don't you Billy? Yeah. That's, was this in LA or where did you have to film or in New it was, York? Or? It was in New York. Yeah. Wow. And then when you like, um, we've talked to some friends that have been on like shark tank and stuff like that. Was there a period of time before it aired that you couldn't talk about it? Yeah. And that how, was the how worst. How long was I, that? Um, we filmed in May and it aired in November. Oof. Yeah. And that part was really hard cause I'd already quit but I couldn't tell anyone why I had quit my job. <laughs> so, so, um, I was just like consulting kind of on the side and like, I was still building the business. Those months actually helped me get a lot of the setup done, like the website, the business cards, the insurance, like just putting everything together. So those quiet months kind of helped, but it was, it was really hard not to tell people. Bruce, how cool would it be to not talk about the business you're going to launch four months from now? And you can only work on it in secrecy. I mean, like, there's I a lot get to so do. much stuff done. Yeah, <laughs> get a lot you're done. right. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe that's what you should do. Because <laughs> four months goes by pretty quick, especially if you, there's like no foundation or anything set up. There's so much to do. Were, were you allowed to tell anyone? Um, I mean, you're under NDAs, but like obviously, my family knew. Yeah, um, you just can't post online friends. or anything. Yeah, like that. it's just like you can't publicly share any. And then when it, when it aired, were you open for business? Was it like, we're live, we're ready to rock and roll? Yeah. Yeah, basically. Um, and it was, it was good. I would say like, it wasn't because I think this was the first season of the show and it obviously doesn't have the like viewership of a shark tank. Um, it wasn't quite the, like the, like avalanche of interest that I had prepped for. Um, but there was, yeah, it did move things forward quite a bit and a lot of good introductions. It's good as you go too. Like when they search Fab Scrap, it comes up. I I think the good part is like it was the it was the push, right? Like every small business, to your point, you have to find those little pushes that are just going to kind of give you a little like step up or a leg up and a little jolt. Um, We've all had them in different instances. Um, whether they go viral or not, that initial jolt is like fuel for entrepreneurs, which is super cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Validating too. I think like that was like a, that with the fact that three of the four investors were like, no, this is a good idea. You should do it was validating given that I just left my job. (laughs) It's a good feeling. There was a segment on CBS. uh, I'll drop the link in the description here um, after for folks listening to watch it. It's pretty cool. But I didn't know at to the scale of clothing and the use of clothing and, and 
I will just say waste that happens. Not, it's not even like like to your point, recycling, but here's some of the stats. So this segment was talking about how a lot of it is exported overseas. Um, and it's just a huge nightmare in other countries. Um, and they show photos of just like, you know, mounds and mounds of these countries that have just clothing and mostly from here. So the U S ships 1.5 billion pounds of clothing out of the U S a year, 1.5 billion. (laughs) Um, I can't visualize that. I don't know how I'd visualize it, but it's just, it's a lot. Um, now what they focused on is Ghana. So a fair amount, call it about 50 million items are sent there. Um, and basically sorted like you were talking about and stripped down. So these huge, like, uh, like almost saran wrap um, square blocks, like these Lego pieces come in, opened up in these markets. And these markets are like football fields of, of like flea markets and are sorted through very quickly and sold, you know, very quickly back and forth as far as the qualities. Um, what was interesting and to your point too, is synthetic fibers can't be broken down. Um, so there was a big push of saying, don't, buy synthetic, uh, if, if you can. And, um, so some get upcycled and sewn as fab scraps doing, and then 40% ends up in landfills. And this just continues every single year. This isn't, uh, you know, like a one-time deal. So it just continues and continues and they're just showing it like it ends up in the ocean and it ends up sitting there and, you know, all these other countries. But, as, ca- as curious, little- I'm sure you're exposed to this or, or like have thoughts on this or, or like, and also just curious as to what we could do in our space. You know, all the shops listening, uh, do have influence with customers to be able to help direct them and, and make better decisions, but that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, the U S has been sort of outsourcing our waste textile among it for a long time now. Um, and particularly the fabric waste is interesting because, um, I think so many people drop things off at like a local organization and assume that it's going to clothe someone like in their neighborhood. And the volumes are just way beyond that. It's something like every year, um, the a local organization could give 60 pieces of clothing to each homeless person in their city. And like most people have that, that's like a full closet. And so it's so much that's being processed and so much of it goes overseas. And a lot of it is not super high quality. Like you're saying, a lot of it is polyester. It never breaks down. It's also kind of destroying local markets. Like there used to be more like organic textile markets, clothing markets that were made from like local artisans. And now we're just kind of flooding them with us clothing crap. (laughs) And so, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of sad all around how hidden that whole process is because, um, I think if more people understood the, the global impacts of like the $5 H and M t-shirt, I think we, we might shop differently. Um, And so some of the things that we usually suggest definitely where you can like natural fibers preferred, because if they are going to end up back in the ground somewhere, at least they will break down. So cotton, linen, the bamboo stuff, silk, um, wool, at least those things will break down over time. Um, and also 
when you're shopping, the longer you can keep something, the better, because part of what like accelerates this is that we buy something and we like wear it for while it's trendy, maybe like a month or two, and then we toss it. And so that really contributes to how much we're sending overseas. So to my campusing team that makes fun of me for wearing a tie dye hoodie for the last five years, <laughs> I know. Yeah. You're very sustainable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. haven't, uh, I just same one every day. Um, I won't tell you how many I have of them, but that's okay. <laughs> um, this is, this is super fascinating. Okay. Like what's your take on, um, like, uh, Patagonia, right? Like they actually said recently that they wouldn't want their customers to like wholesale and decorate on it. I I've been reading through a little bit of, of his book. Um, what's your take on like his whole philosophy on everything? Are you like a, a big follower of, of him? Um, yeah, I've read, I've read a bit. Um, and then or is just it a in marketing farce too? This- I don't, they're one of the few companies that I think like really intentionally thinks about, how they're running their business, um, beyond just what it means for marketing. Mm -hmm. I think for them, it's been a plus that the right decision for people and planet has also been profitable for them in a marketing sense. But I mean, one of the things that they've always done really well is creating more of their stuff is a little pricier, but it's created to last for a really long time. And so that also means that their resale market is pretty high for customer or for them if they're taking back things for resale. Um, I know that at some point they were doing a lot of repairs, which is great from the customer perspective and from theirs. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it just works out for them that what they're doing is good, but also marketable right now. Yeah, they, they talk about uh, Yvonne Yvonne Chouinard, um, and they talk about the book's called Let My People Go Surfing. So, Bruce, you mm-hmm. should probably read this for a surfer. <laughs> um, but they talk about the hardware that they use to make sure that, like, all the zippers can be repaired, everything can be mended. And I, I don't know if it's still true or not, but you can send your stuff back to them and they'll fix it, or mm-hmm. that everything should be repairable. And sure enough, like, a lot of us have Patagonia jackets that have lasted. A lifetime, and 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 I think there's there's a lot to be said there about about high quality stuff that that can be fixed. For sure. Um, so that's a that's a pretty good one there. What's you know? So now that you're kind of thinking about LA and Philly, is your goal for this to be a a, a thing across the United States? Like, there's so many ways I can see this playing out if we were to talk 10 years from now, which I hope we do. <laughs> like, what, yeah, what are your, your grand plans for the business? Um, I mean, we have we have a few things um, that I'm hoping start to, start to take shape over the next couple of years. Definitely like West Coast expansion. Like I said, that was something we had started in January of 2020 and it got cut short. So definitely West Coast expansion. And then I think beyond that, um, it's probably more franchising internationally because I think someone who knows that city, knows the industries there, knows the creative community there is going to run it better than I could. What we want is is the data and we want to kind of like understand the the full circular system and market. So as long as the data is sort of under under our our roof, then we're good. Um, I think the next thing that we're trying to do is really help brands reduce waste. So we've done a good job of recycling and redistributing it or like recycling and reusing it. 
but like the goal would be that we're not creating so much in the first place. So we're really doing an audit of everything that we bring in and helping brands communicate with their mills about how to better sample fabric so that they're not creating so much waste in the first place. So we'd like to take some leadership there on like real reduction <laughs> changes, not just recycling. Um, then with all of this data and like we have so many brand partners now and there's some um, new legislation that's being introduced around textile waste and like responsibility in the fashion industry. I think we could help inform future policy so that it's it's actually meaningful and like having the impact that we want, but also on like a realistic timeline for people to comply, for the infrastructure to be there, to be able to handle waste loads, et cetera. So I, I hope we can get involved in policy too, as that moves forward. And, and Jess, there's definitely a need for it in screen printing. Um, like just <laughs> in our industry, there isn't much um, communication about, you know, and, and, and how many scraps and waste shirts that, that we all have. I think Dom was one of the first ones to talk about it like last week, Bruce. I don't, I don't know if you've heard much about it, but mm -hmm. it's definitely a market that needs it. Um, so if you're looking for opportunities, we're here for you. For yeah, sure. yeah, we can definitely um, work with screen printers. We have a few in New York signed up for service. Um, and I think it, I think it's a good thing, like in that pat Patagonia marketing way to be able to like share with your customers that you're doing something sustainable. If something gets misprinted or, or damaged, that there's like a good option for it besides just throwing it away. Fabscrap.org. Make sure you check them out. Follow them. You can find it uh, online. Thank you so much, Jess. Um, also, hats off to you for, for finding your need, um, working there and, and making the leap forward to to uh, create a pretty cool, sustainable business. I really like it. Oh, thanks, guys. This was fun. Cool. Thank you thanks guys so, so much, much for Jess. listening to the Printavo Printhouse Podcast. I'm Bruce from Printavo. This is Stephen Ferry, got a Campus Inc. We'll see you guys on the next episode.